0: Welcome to In20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Gresham's Law, when there are two forms of money representing the same monetary value, but one is considered better than the other, people will hoard the better form and it will disappear from circulation. In Tennessee, Bud drives up the holler. Steep slopes on either side push the buildings to the one winding road in the middle. Bud parks his pickup by a long, two-story building that once housed a post office, doctor's office, and jail. A gifts and grocery store now occupies the lower floor. A sign hanging off the upper floor reads, The Old Timer's Tavern. Moving clouds cast moody shadows. As Bub locks his truck, he looks past the small, blue coffee shack at a group of homeless people standing in an empty lot, about a dozen of them. Most look youngish. They all gather around some project. He can't tell what it is they are doing. It could be anything. They could be fixing a bike, patching a tent. Bud climbs the creaking wooden stairs to the tavern entrance. He can still see them as he climbs. None of them look up at him. In an area where everyone waves to everyone, it feels weird. Inside, three older barflies hold down the counter and younger folks sit at tables. Dr. Mashup Country Plays Dr. Mashup is an AI that takes millions of songs, in this case, country songs. makes mashups. Bud's heard this particular mashup before. It may have been in that movie that came out last year. Bud doesn't know. He didn't see the movie. The song tells everyone that this bar is friendly for all the newcomers who have moved here. His brother, John, at a booth next to a window, stares at his phone. When Bud sits across from him, John only briefly glances up. Hold on, It's not like I haven't seen you for two years, Bud says. A two-thirds full pitcher sits on the table. It takes Bud a minute to get used to how ripped John has gotten. His receding, blonde hairline adds to all the sharp angles on his face. He smiles and two dimples appear on each cheek. John stands up. Brother, I'm back from World War III. He gives Bud a burly hug. They sit, and John pours Bud a beer man, it's great to be back. Things have changed around here. Bud says, yeah, we're getting hit with a wave. John says, gentrification nation. Bud brushes his mouth with the back of his hand and says, it's the new photonic computer plant. Bud watches John's quick movements, shifting on the seat and tapping the table. John has aged. He's not boyish at all anymore. Could it be he's killed? It would probably be rude to ask. John says, what about that new city off the highway? Bud says, that's not a city. John says, I know. I'm joking. How many stories are those buildings? Bud says, around 20. John says, any idea what they grow in them? Bud shakes his head. I don't know. I heard wheat once, but it could be anything, pineapples. He's used to having this conversation with most people he talks to. I want one of those Photonic Connect wearables. John says, what are those? Bud says, they won't come out for a couple more years. You wear one on your wrist or ankle and it's your everything device. Everything else is a peripheral, foldable, VR shades, TV, car. John looks toward the counter. Wow. Who would ever have thought that a hot bartender would ever work here? Bud looks. A woman with killer cheekbones and brown hair tied back in a bun places drinks on a tray, loose strands hanging over her face. She's got the multitasking down, serving drinks while talking with people. She seems friendly from the gut, not nicey-nicey but direct, genuine, and easygoing. Her arms are bare up to her shoulders and covered in tattoos that broadcast a nature girl vibe more than a thug life vibe. Some of her inkwork has iridescence which looks really nice shimmering under the different color lights. She happens to glance over and smiles at Bud. He doesn't look away when she starts talking to a customer. John has a brutal looking pocket knife out that he's using to clean his fingernails. Well, now that I've been with some army babes, I don't know if I could switch back. Bud nods. Are they good? John's head kicks back when he laughs. Yeah. They clinch it. They clinch, clinch it good. Sometime later, the windows are dark. More people come in, the chairs fill, and some people stand Bud buys the next pitcher. When he returns to his seat, John goes to the bathroom. The music is louder and there's a lot of laughter. Someone found the light switch and the back half of the bar goes dark, goes light, goes dark, on and on. John returns with red eyes. Dude, anyone could join the military. For training, they gave us this shit that made training a breeze. They fed us these poop pills that helped us put on muscle. Like, I saw these wusses joining that grandma could beat up. After a few weeks, I would think twice about messing with them and they regiment your medication all the way through. But they don't call it medication. They just say, here's your pill. Bud says, wow. Two young women stand next to their table. The one pulling on her hair says, I'm sorry to bother you but there are no places to sit. Can we share this? John almost stands up. Oh, go right ahead. One sits next to John and the other next to Bud. Thank you. They immediately dive deep into conversation with each other. It was like I just told you, you can tell her what you want, but she is never, 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 never going to let it go. Bud lifts a nearly empty pitcher and pours the rest into John's glass. One last? John rocks back and forth. Oh, sure. With the pitcher, Bud pushes past people to the bar and waits. The bartender brings a tray of glasses over and shelves it under the counter. Want a refill? Bud nods. Please. She sets the pitcher under the tap and fills. Turning to him, she tilts her head and smiles with a questioning look. You know, I think I saw you on Browning Avenue the other day. Bud looks surprised. Oh yeah, I live near there. She pours the suds off the top and brings the pitcher back. Me too. What looks similar to a hockey puck lights up he sets his phone on it to pay. Thanks. She says, sure thing. She waits. Bud says, what do you do when you're not bartending? She frowns then smiles. Oh, I've been known to pick up a guitar or bass. He says, really? She says, yeah, a flute if I'm feeling crazy. He lifts the pitcher off the counter. Nice. They share smiles, then he maneuvers through the crowd. People happily shout at each other over the music. Most are transplants, he can tell. He overhears science-wide terms and technical terms. Not familiar with corporate banter, it sounds unreal to his ears. People he never would have seen in Tennessee a few years ago are now calling this place home. How does he feel about that? He's not sure. Seated again the girls next to him and John remain absorbed in their conversation. They don't notice the rest of the scene at all. Bobby got me my fake ID. He's such a hacker. He tried to show me the software he uses. John takes a sip of beer, leans back, digs in his pocket, and pulls out a plastic bottle. When they fly you to combat, first they give you a block and say, Chew this. This is your meal for the next three days. So we're all on the plane chewing on tasteless brownie bricks, rocking back and forth. The girl next to Bud pushes her leg against his, still fully engaged in conversation with her friend. Some of the people standing move to the music. John tilts the bottle back and forth, rattling its contents then they give each of us one pill, making sure everyone takes one. The medic has a special flashlight and shines it in your mouth. After you take it, I'm telling you, for the next 48 hours you are Rambo. Without that pill, the brick meal would give you severe stomach cramps and pass through without getting digested. With the pill, that meal becomes your fuel brick for the next 48 hours. And I don't care who you are, your mind becomes so attuned for the battle. It's like a ride. I barely remember it because that's one thing it does is it makes it so you barely remember anything so that you won't have PTSD. But I do remember telling myself, wow this is amazing. It isn't that time slows down, it's that each moment is so huge. Even if you had a hundred choices in front of you, you make the right one. You are laser focused. And I swear you can literally walk a tight rope. I don't care how good your aim is, after taking the pill, your aim is so much better. I can remember telling myself this feels amazing but what feels amazing is being dropped down in the middle of the fight feeling that way. It isn't like any kind of speed. This is something different, I'm telling you. He leans back and grins. Bud laughs. Wow, are you sure you can tell me this? John says, no, it's okay. John looks around, then he opens the bottle and takes out a little blue pill. Take it. Bud says, wait, what? John says, take one. Bud says, what is it? John's voice drops to a whisper. It's a combat pill. Bud frowns. Where did you get those? John says, okay, look, don't tell anyone. John hands a pill to Bud who takes it quickly. He pockets the bottle. I ran across a medic on the field near a downed plane and found this bottle on her. Bud slips the pill into his shirt pocket wow john says wow is right keep that dry and put it in a baggie as soon as you get the chance john chats it up with the two girls while bud goes to the bathroom the place is starting to empty an old country song plays on his way back the bartender waves him over hey could i ask you a favor bud bows slightly sure my ride isn't going to make it, could I get a ride with you? Sure. Great. Or wait, what do you think of the Emancipate Cake Shop victory? What's that? The Supreme Court just ruled in favor of a bakery refusing to make a wedding cake for a Muslim couple because it went against the baker's religion. What? That's fucked up. I mean, I know the Supreme Court has a Christian agenda. Okay, just want to make sure. She pauses and watches Bud. Bud says, Yeah, you're right. Sell someone the damn cake lest you be denied cake. I think that's what it says in Leviticus 3, 4, 5. So rude. She busts out laughing. Just come up here near closing. You got it. Bud joins his brother who says, Hey Bud, these two were just telling me about an after-hours get-together they know about. Wanna go? Bud says, um, maybe some other time. The girl that had sat next to him pretend pouts. John says, you're lost, bro. The three already shift places and head for the door. Bud calls after John, I'm going prepping with Pop tomorrow, are you coming? John looks back at him. I don't know. Text me before you go. Get your beauty rest. He and the girls laugh. Bud sits drinking water and playing on his phone as the place empties out. He doesn't notice when the music ends, and no new song starts. The bartender stands next to him. He must crane his neck to look up at her. You done? She gives him a mischievous smile. Just need to lock up on the way out. Now that her apron is off, her short t-shirt reveals her midriff. Tattoos cross between the top of her jeans and her shirt butterflies, and mushrooms. The apron also hid how smoking hot her breasts are. Bud gets up. I'm Bud, by the way. And you're? Jeanette. In the darkness outside, they walk to his truck. No sign of the group of homeless. He gets in on the driver's side, and she gets in on the passenger side. She twists around to look out the back window. Your truck bed is scratched and dirty. Bud says, Oh, well. She laughs. No, it's a good thing. It means you use your truck as a truck. Are you going to ask me to help you move? Not yet. She faces forward. Bud looks at the dash. Okay, Goggle, take me to. He turns to her. What's your address? 43 Axmen. Take us to 43 Axmen. The truck lights turn on, the quiet hum of the engine starts, and the steering wheel recedes up against the dash. On the drive, winding roads speed them past trees like specters. They roll the windows down. The truck pulls up next to a rundown house behind a grassy ditch. Jeanette turns to Bud with a wondering expression. You feeling tired? Bud raises his eyebrows. Not particularly. You can come in for a bit, if you like. She gives him a soft smile. Sure, he says playing it casual. The next morning, Jeanette gives Bud a pill that completely erases his hangover in minutes. She says, these will sober you up if you're drunk. Seriously, my little brother takes one just before he goes back home after a party. Wow, Bud says. Isn't he sad that he has to go to bed sober? My mom would ground him for a year if he came home drunk. They touch phones to exchange numbers, and Bud lets his truck drive him to his dad's house. He sleeps a little on the way. Before he gets out of the truck, his dad walks out to meet him, wearing an old baseball hat and suspenders. Whenever his dad stands, his hands are always out at his sides like he's going to draw pistols. He and his dad, Henry, hike up into the mountains, both carrying heavy backpacks. Henry does most of the talking. When people say they prepare for the worst, they almost always prepare for the best of the worst. What they should do is prepare for the worst of the worst. That's right, Dad. What are we packing this time? Henry's gaze scans the slope. Lots of hydrogen. The new lightweight containers make it worth the haul. I'm bringing hydrogen instead of water because the byproduct of a hydrogen power cell is pure water. One part hydrogen makes nine parts pure water. That way, I've got power and water. Oh, did you think of that? His dad sucks his teeth. Yep. They get to the top of a ridge and unload to rest and eat. Henry says, why are you always on that talk talk?" Bud looks up from his phone. Talk talk saves lives. How many compulsive gamblers and drug addicts never became those things because talk-talk triggers the same parts of the brain? Henry says, I haven't drank for over three years now. Bud nods slowly. Good job. Henry squints up at the sun, do you think you can find the rest of the way by yourself? I think I can. Good. After a few hours of cutting across the wilderness, Bud stops. Isn't it? He begins to point north. Wait, son. We ought to check first. Henry sweeps the terrain with a thermal scope. All clear. Nobody out here. Bud leads his dad to the old tree. They pull up a board covered with dirt and weeds to uncover the entrance to Henry's bunker. Henry enters first. Watch your head. You've filled the place. I always bring something up you've got some jars of coins. You can put them over there. Henry flips a switch and the lights come on. Bud faces a shelf where many containers, some plastic, some glass, contain coins. He pulls more jars of coins from his pack and sets them on the shelf. Are any of these coins worth anything? Not now. But someday they're going to stop making physical money, and when they do, all coins become a limited trade good all hard money is going to be the new gold. Bud pulls more items from the pack. You should know. You're the coin dealer. Are all these coins your customers? For the most part. Someone inherits a jar of coins and brings them to me to see if any of them are worth anything. Most customers just want to get the coins off their hands. Bud says, yeah. This is where you have all your old DVDs, I thought you got rid of them. Henry shrugs. If the world is coming to an end, I figure it's a good time to relive a few good memories. Dirty dancing. You're a romantic dad. That is one of the first movies your mother and I went to. I miss her too. Where's that hydrogen power cell? Here. Bud throws up his arms. It's small. Henry unloads his pack. You can hook that up to any EV and run it while the batteries recharge. That is pretty sharp. But what if you just want water and not power? I figure I could build some salt water batteries up here and charge them while I make drinking water. Here, Henry takes a small bottle off the shelf. This is the minerals you add to the water, so you can drink it. I know that. Well, here it is if you ever have to come up here alone. Bud says, got it. After covering the opening and replanting weeds on top, they both travel pretty light: knives, cord, tinder boxes, compass. For the next 24 hours, they practice survival, hunting, resource gathering, and making shelters with the bare minimum. The next day on the hike out of the mountains with practically empty packs, Henry says, "I'm telling you, these people had a plan all along. Back in the 80s, they took their kids out of public school and started homeschooling them." Did anyone notice? No. And they started having more babies. While everyone else stopped having babies, that was when fundamentalists started having three to five babies for each family. And right now, we're talking about the second generation of homeschooling. They teach their kids that the earth is flat. Bud avoids a boulder. I don't think they do that. Henry snorts. Some of them do. At least some of them and the Mexican Americans, and Catholics, they're right in line with what the fundamentalists are doing. In twenty years, they took a declining group and now are the dominant group that are going to take over America all over again. Bud says, are they still wanting to buy the property? I guess so. Honestly, I don't answer the door anymore. How's that job of yours going? Yeah, good. I'm used to the heights now. Everything snaps together. The crane arms bring us the next piece, hold it in place, and I inject the solvent. Henry says, you ever see one when they have the plants inside? Not yet. Your co-workers are still from out of state? Mostly. A lot of them travel all over in RVs. They sort of have their own culture. Henry says, I always wanted work to come back here. Be careful what you wish for. It came back now it's just driving the prices up. I'm glad you have work though. Bud drops his dad off. Henry waves to him. Isn't John back? Why didn't he come out with you? Bud says, I'll call him and tell him to visit. See you in a month. By now. The sun is set when he gets back to the apartment complex. Climbing the stairs, he can see a notice on his door. A rent increase will go into effect next month rent will still be expected at the first of the month. Bud's heart pounds as he enters his apartment, slamming the door behind him. I can't pay this. I have truck payments. How am I supposed to cover this? He can't sleep. With the keyboard, mouse, and monitor that pairs with his phone, he goes online. Job offers in his area are sparse. The construction company he already works for is hiring but doesn't pay enough unless he becomes a car camping employee. The idea depresses him, not the car camping part so much as staying in his hometown when he can't afford to rent an apartment anymore. His dad will probably offer him his old room but Bud would rather go fight in the war before he did that. An ad catches his eye. Get paid mapping for Goggle. Explore the city. Meet people. Meet people. The photo shows a woman wearing a blue polo shirt, khakis, and an instrument on her back. The instrument must be LIDAR and cameras, a pedestrian version of goggle mapping cars. He clicks on it. It's a job carrying mapping equipment into buildings. The pay is double what he makes on construction. He stands and paces, smiling. That sounds like fun. He should try living in a city at least once in his life. Before the month is up, he is driving to Detroit, packing light. Each night he stays at sketchy vacays. One above a dingy restaurant is in a room so small he has to climb on top of the single bed just to enter. The room is only big enough for the bed. Sounds of families easily penetrate the walls. The next day, his truck isn't where he parked it. He circles a few blocks, stopping people. Did you see a black truck? They forlornly shake their heads, obviously wanting him to leave them alone. His voice is too loud. As much as he wants to kick something or punch something, he calls 911 instead. The police come two hours later. A male and female cop, both Maltese. Bud gives them his truck tracking number. Not ten minutes later, the police get a radio call, they did not find his truck, but they found its tracking devices, tags, and other identifiers all in a dumpster half a mile away. The male officer says, pros. The female cop asks, are you covered for theft? Bud only has liability insurance. The female cop, maybe five years older than him, says that tomorrow is her day off and she can drive him to Detroit if he wants. She gives him her address. He hikes it and he waits on her porch until she parks out front, Her apartment is small but her bed is much more comfortable than the one he slept on the night before and it turns out she's a great cook. She shows him a video of a swim meet she was in at the academy while they eat. The next day she drives an EV conversion, a Buick from the 80s and it has no self-drive so she has to drive it herself the whole time, but she doesn't seem to mind. Have you ever considered going into acting or something like that? He watches buildings go by. No, not really. His first day on the job could not go better. The morning starts in a large space, upper story, downtown. Around 30 people sit around like they all belong in a club before receiving the mapping packs and routes. Bud is excited. The packs, plastic boxes with sensors sticking out, are light and do everything themselves. All he needs to do is follow his route which he has on a tablet they gave him. He walks through a lot of offices and high-rises but he also walks through the downtown library, the biggest church he has ever been in, and a microbrewery. The public knows who he is on site, the goggle mapper. In an elevator, a man asks him if he likes ballet. Outside, a couple in all manner of get-up hand him flyers to a rave. Give some to the other mappers. People pose for the mapping pack wherever he goes. Though software will blur their faces, they still want to show up in goggle maps. When his shift is over, he pulls his bike from the bike room and rides out of downtown. He rides through some nice neighborhoods, brick buildings side by side, through dilapidated neighborhoods, and into the trees, into what locals call Sherwood Forest. Here, roads still exist to some extent, though he'd never try to drive on them. Most of the houses and buildings crumbled decades ago and are at least two-thirds reduced to rubble. This was city before, but forest has come back with a vengeance. Crossing between city and forest, he stays alert, scanning. Here, gangs make drug deals, prostitutes take johns, and homeless put up shelters that look like garbage heaps. These parts spook him some. Graffiti on trees and witchy stick art make him wonder. Is someone just making a scary place scarier for the fun of it, or is there some bloodthirsty cult who comes out here and already knows about him biking through the area? people illegally dump, and some of the garbage heaps are two stories high, but soon he passes the far extent of how far bumpers are willing to haul their garbage back into the trees. Someone places a grand piano out in the road because that's the kind of thing people do. That, and set up an entire living room on the street with antique furniture. He reminds himself that this is not a post-apocalyptic world. It's just Detroit which lost population and got eaten by nature. Leave this area alone for a few more decades and you won't be able to tell it wasn't always a forest. After he rides around the first tree in the road, he breathes a little easier. The woods become woodsier. Deer, rabbits, and foxes can be spotted here, along with stray dogs and cats. He rides around crumbled rust heaps of cars. A lot of the lamp posts still stand though the wires are long gone. The deeper into the woods he goes, the more it's his domain, most of those city folks don't know what to do with nature. Elevated train tracks run on his right, rusting slowly and covered in botanica. Crumbled cornerstones and stairs stick out here and there but it's mostly forest. The era of scavengers is long gone. He heard about people tearing all the wires out of houses and pulling pipes. He did poke around a few of the ruins when he first checked this region out but found nothing worth claiming. He takes different ways each time so he won't burn a trail all the way to his camp. His mountain bike handles the overgrowth pretty well. Sometimes he has to get off and carry it. After half an hour, he spots camp, up ahead by the big tree where the ruins are most ruinous, leaving more open space. No one is in sight. No human sounds, only birds and the wind he hustles down steps that once lead to a basement and turns over an old wheel to access one of his stashes. Working quickly, he digs some of his things from his backpack, places them in the hole, and covers it. After biking a few more minutes, he reaches camp, in a thicket of trees a shelter of branches and cheap plastic tarps. He pushes his bike into the shelter, locks it to a tree trunk, then plugs his phone and VR shades into a battery pack built into his backpack. He walks a large circle checking his water catchments, tarps hung in trees to catch dew and hopefully rain. Each tarp angles into found containers, plastic mostly. He harvests a cup of water, not much at all. Once it rains he will be set for water. In the meantime, he will still need to bring some from the city each day. Sitting on the ground eating a hoagie, he works on his rocket stove. Made of bricks, an old sewer pipe, and a barrel, the rocket stove will burn most of the carbon coming off the fire and produce hardly any smoke. So no one will see smoke rising off his camp. It should be finished by fall. He fashions a burn plate over bricks so he can heat water and cook. He climbs a tree to bring down a camouflage bag containing his sleeping bag, then gets into it to sleep. He's using a small percentage of his wood skills the city allows for a lot of conveniences, laundry mat, camping in cafes, catching a game in a sports bar. He's saving money and he would probably get homesick if he didn't live in the woods. At night, he hardly hears the city. Only sometimes does the rattle of far-off gunfire wake him. He arrives to work 40 minutes early, so he can charge his battery pack. Most coworkers don't show up until minutes before the starting time, so he has the place to himself. After a month mapping, his coworkers are still standoffish. Most of them seem like kids, even though he isn't much older than them, maybe a year or two. A lot of them are LGBTQ. He's cool with that. At least he's pretty sure he's cool with that. The friendliest of his coworkers, Bran, is Butch. She sits next to him sometimes during morning meetings. One coworker girl, Valerie, with wavy, long black hair, always looks pissed off at him. One morning, when he thinks he's the only one there, Valerie walks glaring sidelong at him, and she keeps right on walking, going into another room. Bud looks back at his phone and sips coffee. She asks, for feet away from him, What time did you get here? Startled, he looks up. Oh, seven. She says, okay, then turns and walks away. What was that about? Later that day, he returns to a building he walked through two weeks ago. Apparently, he will be given repeat routes regularly. Floor after floor he walks through office spaces feeling bad for the suits that have to work in cubicles. The first time he walked through this office, he hardly saw any faces. Everyone was trained on their monitors but this time when he steps off the elevator onto the fifth floor, one of the two women behind the reception counter pulls her headset off and hustles down the hall. Down the first aisle, some faces look up at him. One guy nods at him. A woman wearing an edgy suit jacket and skirt is standing in front of him. He slows to a halt. She tells him, Come into my office, please. He follows her. Yes, ma'am. In her office, she sits on the edge of her desk. Go ahead and close the door. He does so, then turns to face her. She can't be older than 30 and she has that stern, conservative look, chiseled, all business all the time. She looks him over. So you're our new mapper? He says, yes. I guess so. She says, what happened to Sergio? Do you know him? He says, no. I haven't met anyone by that name. She says, well, that happens. You know that Sergio made quite a bit of extra money on the side, nothing illegal, inter-office deliveries. I'm not sure how I felt about that. What do you think? He says, did he fall behind on his route? She says, no, I believe he had no problem finishing on time. As of last month, he was a five-star employee at Goggle but probably a lot of people here voted him up. He says, I don't think a side hustle in itself is any problem. But, ma'am, if you have a problem with it I promise, I won't do anything like that on your floor. A surprisingly charming smile breaks out on her lips. She reaches back, picks up a small object, and extends her arm to show him. Oh, actually I've been meaning to take this memory stick to the engineers on the top floor. I could take it to them, but I know you'll end up there yourself." Bud takes the stick, giving her the ultra-easygoing smile that has worked countless times in the past. I would be happy to do that for you. She blinks and nods, relaxing a little. Great. She pays him, phone to phone. Don't lose that now. He pats his breast pocket where it is. I won't. She opens her eyes wide for a moment as something occurs to her hey, do you like bonbons? He says, I don't know. I've never tried one. Taking a flat box off her desk, she holds it out to him with that long reach. These come from a candy shop on Woodward. He pulls one out and examines it. She says, you can eat it here. It will get messy if you take it with you. She takes one herself and bites into it, keeping her eyes on him. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomayshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.